I think as we celebrate Mother's Day, uh, a lot of us are probably here because our mothers in some way have been uh, directors in our lives towards all things spiritual and, and, and holy and good. I know it wasn't until age 19 that I really began to discover that there was a layer to life uh, that I wasn't attending to uh, that happened to be uh, that happened to have God's name written all over it. And uh, my mom had done a lot for uh, uh, the, the duration of my teenage years to pray that I would somehow discover that layer of life that uh, I needed to attend to that had Jesus on it. And uh, I know that I'm here because of her prayers and because of the prayers of her mother. And I'm always grateful for the influence that my mom has had on my life in that way. Uh, she's always been a, a, a good presence to give direction um, and, to, and, and to really follow the process of, of, uh, uh, of loving me, knowing that she had to at one point let go. And that's what a mother has to do. It's the hardest part of, of her role is to know that she's been given the, the unique privilege of birthing a child into the world and then God wiring her to love and nurture this child uh, but with the realization from the very first day, uh, you have to begin the process of letting go. And it's not easy to think about disconnecting whenever you're just now starting to bond. But my mother, whenever she was uh, uh, in, in my life at the various seasons, was always directing me in a way to make me more independent. Uh, you know, whenever I, I can remember when I was little, little, uh, and she would go to the restroom. I know this is TMI, uh, like a public restroom. She would take me in there with her. And uh, it was almost like a rite of passage when I started to go in with her one day. And she said, no, you go in that one. And it was like, oh, I guess I'm a big boy now. Uh, and, but, but, you know, I, I have to say I almost called her. Uh, when I was down in Atlanta uh, last week, whenever I was looking at the restrooms, in light of all the controversy that's going on out there about who can go to what restroom and who's what gender and, and, and all of the confusion that's going on, I had to go to the restroom really bad and I saw a sign that said it had male and it had female. And I really had to go and I was thinking, I don't know what this means. And I just ran away because uh, I thought, is this a transgender thing? Is this just a unisex thing? I'm not prepared to handle a challenge like this. My mom would probably just say, you figure it out uh, at this point. I've done my job. Uh, now uh, it's your turn to be independent. I've let go. Uh, and as I think about the message uh, that we're covering today, uh, I know that there is in the backdrop of the character that we're focusing on, Joseph, uh, the, uh, the, the imagery of a wonderful woman who, unfortunately, uh, due to the way childbirth had so many risks in that time, uh, when his brother was being birthed, she did not survive. And yet, the, the legend of her desire for the success and well-being of these children as they became tribes and then centerpieces for God's people here on earth 
it just became so legendary that when Jeremiah wrote about the people who were her children, uh, the children of Joseph and Benjamin, falling away and being taken captive by the Assyrians, Jeremiah said, you can just hear Rachel, the mother of Joseph, weeping in the wilderness. And it was her heart going out to wayward children who needed to be rescued. And I want to stop right there in, in that story and, and, and back up a little bit to how she got that way in the first place. Now, if you've ever read the book of Genesis, you know that there is some pretty heavy drama that lasts for 20 chapters, uh, right around chapter 30 on through the end. And it centers on one character that is the grandson of Abraham, who seems to have a pretty interesting life, sometimes sketchy, sometimes very godly. And as he's coming of age, he's thinking about the prospect, and we're speaking of Jacob, the prospect of, of, of finding a mate, a wife. And he goes to uh, Mesopotamia, where he knows some relatives live, and he's at a well, and he's watering his animals. And wouldn't you know it, and I think this is the way God works sometimes, he's watering his animals, and this girl shows up, and she's watering her animals, and he looks into her eyes, and she looks into his eyes, and then, well, would you know it, <laughs> the rest is history. You ever have that experience with someone? Look in their eyes, and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh no, <laughs> this is destiny. And if you've ever had that, and maybe uh, with your spouse that's the way it worked out, uh, you know it's a game changer, and that's where it all began. Then the story from there is told in a way that it describes a very smitten Jacob whose um, mother had actually sent him off to go find a wife because she knew that it was just time. And he finds through her urging and his encounter that God's being a matchmaker in this whole equation. When Rachel, uh, the younger sister of Leah, looks at Jacob... She is just giddy, and she goes back to her, her dad, and she says, you will not believe who I met, and it was, I don't know if, 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 if you can translate the Hebrew uh, this way, but basically she said, I've met Mr. Wright, and as she's sharing all of this, there is a sister who is unmarried in the backdrop seeing an excited, um, much prettier, younger sister uh, carry on about this new man that is, has, completely has her smitten. And I know that in her mind she's thinking, I'm wondering if there will ever come a day when Mr. Wright will show up in my world. Well, if you know families, uh, and, and I'd be the first to tell you, uh, there's dysfunctionality uh, that happens in them, and they were dysfunctionality in my own family. Probably I could say there's some dysfunctionality that I've probably created for uh, the family that my wife and I have created. Uh, and Joseph, uh, before he came into the world, came into a family that was, well, is pretty messed up. And it was messed up in major ways that went back for generations. 
And sometimes when the Bible says the sins of the fathers are delivered upon the sins of the children, um, it's not too far off the mark. And as Jacob uh, is uh, beginning to come of age, he's got some tactics for how he lives his life that aren't so, aren't so great. And the story unfolds in a way that describes um, an interesting relationship between he and his uncle as he becomes aware of his uncle's daughter. I know this sounds a little incestuous, but Rachel uh, is a second cousin. And back then, I guess that was acceptable. I don't know if that's acceptable now, and I'm not going to pry into anybody's life to find out how that worked out. But in, uh, in this case, Jacob had spent some time with his uncle, earning his favor so that he could earn his daughter. And his uncle saw Jacob as an economic means to a greater end. And he said, I would be happy to give you my daughter in a hand of marriage, but you've got to work for me and you've got to work for her. And let's say right around seven years, I think that's fair, uh, that you work on my farm and then she's all yours. Well, Joseph, as I don't know if you realize this or not, but whenever you are smitten, God has made us so that inside of our brains, there are neurotransmitters that make us feel so good about life. And they kick in in such a way that when they do, uh, whoever that person is that's on the receiving end of your affections, they can do no wrong. Uh, and whatever it is that you're thinking that is going to amount to life together, you feel like, and that person feels like, you can just conquer the world. And oftentimes as a pastor, uh, as a sidebar, when those couples come into my office for counseling, I almost feel like I don't even know why I'm counseling because you're just going to tell me what I want to hear because you are feeling right now through all these hormones that are coursing through your brain, that it's just all good, and everything's going to work out. Uh, but I try to counsel nonetheless, and I know that um, uh, I was there uh, myself. I know how it works. And Jacob and Rachel were right there. And there is an uncle that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to capitalize on their love to the greatest extent. And... He's not a nice person. And so he, of course, set it up so that Jacob would be beholden to him for the duration of seven years. The night of the wedding, the uncle also springs on this smitten couple. The idea that it's really wrong for a younger sister to get married before her older sister does. And in that polygamous culture, he he instructed Jacob that it was essential for him to, first of all, marry Leah, and then he could marry Rachel. Does that sound twisted? But these are the people that are in the Bible. These are people that God's work, worked with through the course of time to accomplish his purposes. And these are the people that God has been working on to transform uh, into a people made to live in his family forever. Maybe you come from a background that's kind of like that and you're thinking, wow, I don't feel so bad knowing that that kind of a story is there in the Bible. 
Well, there's a lot worse stories, but this is one of those that's just very interesting and probably not God's best vision for marriage. But despite that, God is actually working in the heart of Rachel through all of this messiness to create a person who will be responsible for birthing a nation. And God doesn't waste any opportunities that he has to make that happen. And one of the strangest things that God has to deal with is this situation that Laban, the uncle of Jacob, has created by saying that you've got to marry Leah. And, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone here is named Leah, but the scripture says unflatteringly that Leah means in the Hebrew wild cow. Now, maybe that's a good thing culturally, but I have a feeling that it's not necessarily flattering. And Rachel, however, you know, she's one with the beautiful eyes. And here the father is looking at these two and he's saying, I've got to find them a husband and I think I've found one who can just take care of the whole matter in one fell swoop. He, in his rather shrewd way, assures Jacob that he can have both of them. But now that he has both of them, he's got to take the responsibility for working not just seven years, but 14. So here this messy relationship, polygamous and actually discouraged by the scripture, uh, is occurring where two sisters are not supposed to marry the same husband. Because invariably, if you've got two wives and one husband, there's going to be problems. And the scripture anticipates that in a polygamous situation, which is not the best, that uh, at least don't, marry, uh, don't, don't have two sisters marry the same guy. Well, that happened, and it just got real interesting afterwards. Can you imagine being Leah? She's got a husband for sure, but she spends her entire life in competition with, of all people, her sister, Rachel, for the affections of their husband, Jacob. This is really hard for me to keep track of, by the way, because I don't follow soap operas, and I'm not much into drama. So uh, if I get it a little bit wrong, please bear with me. Uh, It is going somewhere. And as those two are vying competitively for his affections, I don't know what he's thinking as a male, other than he has two females that he can sleep with. And maybe that's all, all the farther he goes with it. Or maybe there is a kind of love that is cultivated there. I'm not really sure. The Bible's not real clear on it. But I do know this. Leah started having children before Rachel did. And it would appear that Rachel's womb was not, was not operating correctly where she could bear children. And the more Leah bore children, the more Rachel became despondent and despairing. And just feeling the desperation that anyone might feel whenever they can't have children. And I know that that's a very difficult thing for anyone to have to face. But in this case, it was something that was so ironic because the whole goal the whole time was for these two to be together and to start a family. And now, because the father has become so involved in it, it's become overly complicated. Well, Rachel... And Leah are in competition over who can have children. 
and who can have, as it turns out, the most. They, her in desperation, said, I'm going to give my husband, my handmaiden, and he can sleep with her, and we'll have some children through her, and at least I can say those are my children. And they concocted this plan, and wouldn't you know it, then it became a competition between handmaidens. And now there's four women in the equation here. And there's one guy, and he's not really saying much other than he's doing that role that guys are supposed to do to create children. And beyond that, it's just back and forth between Rachel and Leah. As it unfolds, God hears Rachel's cry. And the scripture says that he, he answers her prayer. And he gives her an opportunity to have a child. And that child that she brings into the world is the child who will actually rock the destiny of God's people. And his name is Joseph. Scripture says that um, she slept with her husband and she conceived and God gave her a child. And basically she called him Joseph because it means the Lord added. The Lord added to my, 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 our family and the Lord added to his people. And, and there are some other aspects to that addition that meant a lot to them in that culture. But I, I just want to say all of this to set it up. That as Joseph became a part of the equation, it created a lot, even more conflict between Rachel and Leah to the point um, where, um, where it, uh, it, just, it just ran deep within the family. Now here's a young man who began to grow and to develop, and he heard one day that his mother was expecting another child. And he, of course, was just the apple of his mother's eye. He was the end-all and be-all. He was the answer to many, many prayers and many, many tears that have been shed. Uh, he was that kid who probably got away with a lot because he was so hard to, uh, to bring into, in, into reality. You, you ever have, have a kid like that that just, you're like, that's a miracle kid, and we're not going to be too, too hard on them. We're not going to discipline them too much. We're just going to celebrate the fact that, that they're here. Um, and I guess probably if you're a firstborn child, maybe you were treated that way whenever you were growing up. I know Maya, whenever she was little, uh, she was like the center of it all. She was kind of the focus of our energy and our love and our affection. And in, in every way, you know, she was like this beautiful little little child that God's blessed us with. And then uh, my wife said, we're going to have another one. And that, of course, was Christian. And Mayim was thrilled about Christian for about a week and a half. And then she said, he can go home now. And, um, and that because she came to the realization that she's no longer at the center. Uh, uh, and, and, and now it's becoming a rivalry between him and her. Only, thankfully, uh, they, 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 they get along very well. Uh, but as, um, as this drama unfolds, uh, the mother who so longingly wanted this child now conceives again. She begins to birth the child. And unfortunately, in the process of bringing him into the world, she, she expires. And Joseph is completely broken up over this. And I don't know exactly what kind of thoughts crossed her mind. But as time unfolded, we saw 
we'll see as we preach this series, Joseph became somebody that was uh, not well liked by his brothers from another mother. And he was someone that was looked upon by his father as that, that, that special, special kid. And that just created greater resentment between all the siblings. And in the backdrop of all of that was a mother who is no longer with them. But there is a, there is a, a belief in the history of the Jewish people that all of these things led her from that place to where she was initially smitten and infatuated by her, her, her boyfriend who became her husband, Jacob. And there are stories in Genesis 30 through 40 that talk about their relationship and things that occurred in their lives. And in the midst of those stories, I know there were prayers that were initially starting out, Lord, find me a husband. And then when she finds a husband, Lord, allow this husband to, to love me like no other, which he did. And then her prayers morph from that to, Lord, give me a child. And as the Lord eventually answered that, child, that, that prayer, then her personality, her thinking, her whole mindset was oriented around the life and well-being and the future of that child. And if you came in this morning, you, uh, you, you saw the title, and it had to do with the question, when a child is in need and how a mother can respond, and I think in ways that, that no one else really can because they understand the well-being of the child. And I'm guessing that behind all of the success that Joseph had, the favor that God had given him, the providence that occurred through uh, being taken into slavery in Egypt, yet finding himself working as a chief administrator of a major Egyptian bureaucrat's household to sinking back to the depths of, of, of the pit once again while he's in prison and then discovering there that God had gifted him so uniquely that it captured Pharaoh's attention. And when it did, it led ultimately to him being second in command over the world's mightiest power at the time and the chief administrator over the whole economy. And I have to believe that part and parcel to that experience were the prayers of a mom that were in the backdrop of his life. And I think that the difficult times that Rachel had to go through, especially being antagonized by a sister who was gloating in the fact that she also got to share the same husband and got to have his children and said, look at all my children and look how you have none. And the pain that that created drove her to become more and more dependent upon the only person who could help her through this dilemma. And that was God. And just stopping for a second... Maybe one of the unique qualities that makes mothers such a special category for us to honor is the fact that they, they, they have awesome qualities. They have charm and beauty and love, and they have a nurturing characteristic that, uh, that, that goes way beyond men. But I also know mothers feel this. 
They feel insecurity. They have times of fear. And when it comes to their children, there's nothing like anticipating them doing well in life. I, I truly believe that children are the glory of their mothers. Uh, ask me how I know. Uh, my wife has, over the years, cracked the whip on our kids so many times to keep them not only in line, but keep them moving forward and to give them opportunities to condition their mind so that they will be disciplined and they will be successful. Any, any moms relate to that? And here I am in the backdrop just saying, yes, dear, yes, dear, you just tell me what to do. Uh, jump how high I'll jump, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, because I know that um, their success has a lot to do with the pride that, 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 that a mom takes uh, in their kids. Sure, I'm proud of my kids, but I think, I think, I think their mother uh, it takes a special pleasure and joy and glory in seeing her kids do well. Uh, so consequently, I'm pretty hands-off with our college kids. Mom tries to find ways to figure out what's going on in their world. Now, they're not real big on Facebook, so she can't find out there. So I like to listen to her talk to them, and she has an uncanny way of prying information out of them that they otherwise would not volunteer so she can get a bead on the state of affairs. And then she'll come back and give me the report. And then she'll also give me my own orders on how I should respond to that. But that's an insight into our world that maybe you didn't even want to know. Uh, only to say that as I've pieced it together, it's primarily driven by a mom's desire to see their child thrive and do well and take glory in that moment. Now, the story of Rachel, unfortunately, tragically ends before it even begins to get off the ground. But out of Rachel comes a nation of people through her son, Joseph, and through her other son, Benjamin, who had his mother die tragically while he was coming into the world. Now, if you know the, the Jewish history, you know there are 12 tribes uh, and the rest of them have to do with the, their handmaidens and, uh, and Leah. And that's where, where all of them come from. But did you know the most significant things that happened amongst the people of God uh, centered primarily on Joseph and Jacob? Now, there is one other character who comes from the other side, so to speak, and that's Judah. But the rest of them uh, is pretty uneven as far as their quality and their character. But as uh, Joseph performed the role that he was called to perform, uh, he led that whole clan, that whole family, to a place of great prosperity in the best part of the world at the time. And he fulfilled his destiny. And I'm sure that in eternity, her mother was looking down and seeing this unfold and finding that even though she was deprived of the privilege of seeing his life uh, uh, unfold as it had, she knew the joy uh, realizing that God had used him in that special way. And then there's Benjamin, who ultimately became the, 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 the ancestor of the first king, uh, Saul. And Benjamin is one of those people that, along with Judah, uh, represented two tribes that um, were really the, the ground and the location for um, the, the southern kingdom that ultimately Jesus came out of. 
Now, Jeremiah said something later on about Rachel when he said, uh, Rachel is, is weeping for his children and she cannot be consoled. And it is an image that the Jews had in the back of their mind that as a nation, as a people, they could always count on in the backdrop of their lives the continuing effect of the prayers of a matriarch named Rachel to, to, to expand out into their lives and ultimately uh, lead to uh, God's care forever and ever. It's really no different than when Jesus prayed for us in John 17 that we'd be one. And he prayed for those that would come after him and those that, who actually would become us, the church. And it's one of those prayers that isn't just for now, but it's for an ongoing, unending duration of time. And maybe those of us in this room who have mothers that are not living right now, maybe even now, the grace and the mercy and the presence of God in your life has been magnified because of the prayers of mothers who have already passed on to their reward, yet the effect of them continue on. Isn't that a staggering thought? And maybe you're a grandmother in the room, and you're thinking, what can I do? And I, I, I'm going to share something uh, that, that Marlon Eibel shared with me uh, uh, recently about her grandson, Daniel. And I know Marlon has been praying for Daniel and that side of the family uh, for, for, for a long time. You know, they were kind of involved in church, and then they got distracted um, and, uh, and hadn't really done much with it. I know that's been a, a concern of yours. And then last Easter, uh, she shared with me, you would not believe who came to church with me. And I said, well, who, you know, who? And she said, well, my grandson, Daniel. I'm just, I'm so excited. And then she told me the story. She said, her grandson uh, was going to be here during Easter, but wasn't sure about coming to church until you invited him. And then he's like, well, you know, I don't have a suit. And Marlon said, well, to be honest with you, you don't need a suit. Just come as you are. And he's like, really? And then the wheels started turning. And uh, the prayer started working, and he came to church. And you know how it is sometimes you bring family to church, and you're like, yeah, they're going to come away, and they're not going to be interested in all, at all. But one thing I do know about this, this church has got a lot of prayers that are propelling things uh, into motion. And when Daniel came, and he experienced our Easter worship together, all of a sudden the light bulb went on. And he began to see that layer of life that all moms pray for. That spiritual layer that says God and Jesus on it. And that Sunday during Easter when he gathered for worship, that layer became obvious. And he walked out of there not saying, oh, that was, that was fun, let's go get something to eat. But rather he came out of there saying, wow. I, I, I don't see church the same way anymore. Something's changed. And I'll tell you where it began. It began in his heart, where all of mother's and grandmother's prayers are targeted. Because we can't change people. Only God can do that. But we can pray for people so that through the influence of God and his spirit and his people, they will change. I wonder sometimes if Rachel, who was crying in the wilderness for her people who would be taken into captivity, 
I wonder sometimes if she didn't anticipate that happening, knowing what little she did about human behavior and realizing that there are bumps ahead, there are dangers ahead, there are things on the way ahead that my children can't even see, but I got a glimpse of, and I just pray that they will be delivered. I just end this message with that quote. Because did you know that when Jesus was born, that quote actually was used by Matthew to apply to what was going on in his life when Herod was killing all of the young males in that region, two years and younger. And he quoted Rachel was crying because her, because her children uh, were, were, were perishing and she could not be comforted. And just like Joseph went to Egypt, another Joseph took his little son to Egypt, and God began to work miraculously through Egypt, birthing things into being, so that when that son came back, and when those people were delivered to the promised land, God could begin to expand upon the family that he had started in that very dysfunctional situation. And behind all of that was a woman named Rachel who under not the best or most ideal of circumstances came to the conclusion in the midst of the messiness of her life that I have no one to turn to and no one to trust as much as I can trust and turn to my Heavenly Father. So mothers, keep doing what you're doing, but also remember that when you turn to the Heavenly Father and you pray on behalf of those that are in your world, changes happen, and maybe in ways that you never anticipated. I don't think my mom ever envisioned me being a pastor. I don't think that's how it works out. I think she was just hoping I'd stay out of trouble. But God, in his vision, he has so much more. And maybe you're saying, I've come into church so that I can escape hell or I can stay out of trouble. And that's fine. And that's certainly an element of it. But the reality is we come to church so that we can begin to walk into a new way of life that is envisioned by a loving and nurturing Heavenly Father. And He's given us this vision so that we can walk with our heads held high, confident and hopeful that the trust that we've placed in his son is sufficient for everything on the road ahead. And one of the things that I've been able to enjoy in this season in life with my mom is that she listens to my sermons uh, every, uh, you know, every time they, they come in the mail. And uh, I've never asked you to do this, uh, but could you just say for me uh, as, a, as a favor... Happy Mother's Day, Mrs. Moore. Would you mind saying that? Just on, on three. One, two, three. Happy Mother's Day, Mrs. Moore. That's awesome. I know that's going to bring her a smile. Um, I, can't, I can't be with her, uh, but I can, I can give her that. And, um, and, and some flowers, of course, uh, that I send through. 1-800-Flowers. But God has something much more in store for us than, than, than just... Something simple like that. He's made, he's made a way for us to be a part of a family. 
that maybe right now it's pretty dysfunctional and pretty messed up, but he said that eventually everything will come correct and be made right. And it begins with the connection that we have to establish with his son Jesus in knowing him and making him our savior and allowing him to begin to work in our lives as our Lord and as our guide through the remainder of our time here on earth. And I know that as you trust him, you'll begin to experience the joy of the Father, the nurturing presence of, of the Father, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit as you make him a part of your life. Because I know he jealously longs to have you in his family. And he went to such an extent to show that desire by sending his son to die for us and come out of that tomb so that we might have life and have life abundantly. I invite you to share in that. You can do that by putting on your connect card. I'd like to know more about following him and becoming part of God's family. Or you can come forward during this time. Either way, uh, I, I just want to invite you into something that is very wonderful uh, that is birthed by the prayers of a lot of people, including a lot of moms, and maybe yours as well.